the absence of illness is not necessarily wellness. You could be not burnt out at work, and so you're not suffering, and not thriving at the same time. So everybody is talking about emotional well-being. So let's look at one smart veterinary practice consultant's vision for what that looks like. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today the man with a plan is Josh Vaseman, a self-described positive change ninja with Flourish Veterinary Consulting. He has been a veterinary hospital administrator, a practice co-owner, and now he'll share his four Ps, explore how leaders stumble, and why getting by is not good enough for our veterinary hospitals anymore. But first, let's talk about why Josh is excited about the science behind emotional well-being and positive psychology. Josh and me, take it away. Okay, Josh, you very kindly just showed me your cool background, which is full of cat toys and stuff, which is awesome. But I don't want to talk about cats, even though I'd love to talk about cats. Uh, I have another topic, which is uh, leadership and emotional well-being. And my very first question is, because I went to your website and dug through all the things you have written about this. I looked at your offerings on your website. We know everyone is talking about emotional well-being in veterinary medicine right now. Maybe all over all of the workplace, but it's really coming in veterinary medicine. And it feels authentic sometimes and a catchphrase another. But what interested me in how you talk about it on the website is you mentioned, quote unquote, the science of well-being. You talk about at one point getting information and then presenting an evidence-based support plan. And that sounds solid. So tell me, where is the science you've researched and looked at that kind of supports the backing so that emotional well-being isn't just, it's not just a catchphrase? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Brendan. I, I appreciate that. And I am delighted and honored that you spent so much time looking through <laughs> my material. That's very kind of you. Yeah. So we created Flourish really with the intention of taking what does the science tell us really contributes to human thriving? We're very, very interested in this idea of thriving. So what does the science tell us tends to contribute to that for human beings? And then how can we bring that to the veterinary space in ways that are both applicable, you know, really fit what we're trying to do and what makes us unique and digestible. And so therefore applicable in a pragmatic way that leaders can actually take these things and put them into play. Can I ask, I I think that's interesting. Use the word thriving. Is that a better word than one you see used previously, does it carry a different feeling for people that maybe they wouldn't have got if you just told them this is about mental health? This is about getting through the day. Thriving feels like a bigger, more positive yes. way to think about this. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I'm reticent to use the word better when okay. I describe these kinds of things. I think it's just a different way of thinking. Okay. So to answer your first question, a lot of the science that we're pulling from at Flourish to, to really apply within the veterinary space comes from fields like positive psychology, positive organizational scholarship, uh, some of the research in positive leadership, things of that nature. And you hear the word positive repeated a lot there. So where these fields really came from, in essence, was this, this sort of sense that, you know, alleviating problems, solving issues, removing illness doesn't necessarily equate to the flip side of that coin, right? Put another way to sort of steal some of the words from Dr. Martin Seligman, 
the absence of illness is not necessarily wellness. You could be not burnt out at work, and so you're not suffering, and not thriving at the same time. You're sort of just in this middle state of meh, you know? And so I'm so grateful. There are so many incredible folks with so much passion and interest and real desire to help out there doing a lot of work on how do we alleviate all of the problems and challenges and issues that we have that we're facing in veterinary medicine so that we can, you know, really tamp down, diminish, or even get rid of some of these problems with burnout that we see, or, you know, uh, depressive symptoms or suicidal ideation or actual death by suicide. And that's great. And I am so grateful that there are people putting those efforts in. And I envision a world, let's say we get rid of those things. Let's say there is no more suicide in veterinary medicine. Let's say there is no more, you know, uh, psychological distress in veterinary medicine. Let's say everybody gets paid well and they only have to work 35 hours a week. This is an awesome world you're describing. Right? Yeah. I mean, it sounds wonderful. And I would ask you, and I've actually done this in front of large audiences, and it's very interesting to see the responses, I would ask you, picture that world. Is that a world where every single veterinary professional is fully happy and fully fulfilled? Are those things enough to get there? And I think in most cases, when we think about that, we can imagine times in our life where we got paid fairly well, or we can imagine times in our life where we weren't overloaded by our work burdens and demands. We can imagine times in our life when we weren't suffering from some sort of a a state of mental distress or mental illness, and not really feeling like we've, quote, made it. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, okay, let's say that all of these problems are solved. What do we need to add to the mix to make sure that, that we really do thrive and flourish in our work and feel that deep sense of fulfillment in this worthy work that we do? Do you actually find when you talk to veterinary professionals about the problems they're facing either themselves or as an organization, or when you go and visit them for in-face consulting or virtual consulting during this time of COVID, do you find that they're actually at a space where met is the most common thing? Or do you usually, I'm almost thinking about the difference between a sick visit, an animal comes in with something, and the veterinarian discovers a bunch of underlying conditions, and those all have to be tackled first before thriving. How do you look at it when you go in? Do you find a lot of met? Or do you actually think it winds up on the person-to-person level, there's a lot of underlying stuff that they need to go work on before they can really thrive? Yeah, that's also a really awesome point to make. And And actually, I'm going to push on that point a little bit. You know, I think it's our tendency is to sort of default to a mindset. And and I really do include myself in that. When I say the word (laughs) our, I mean, I'm a human being too. And I, I have this history of doing this also. Our tendency is to default to first noticing and really having a strong reaction to the problems or deficiencies in our environment or in our experience, right? And then we want to then fix or eliminate those challenges, quote, before we move on to the good stuff. And the truth is, is that we're actually capable of doing both at the same time. And it can be quite healthy to do both at the same time. There's a lot of research that really shows that actually we can experience both I'm reticent to use these words, but it's, it is an oversimplification, but it, but it is, it, I mean, it's just the way that we think it is possible to experience both negative and positive emotional states at the same time. And so our approach is less about, okay, let's eliminate the problems so that we can then do the good stuff. Our approach is let's recognize and honor the problems and cultivate the good stuff that we're trying to cultivate in the first place 
at the same time. I suppose then there is the possibility, and maybe you run into this, I, I hear what you're saying about kind of the focus on the problems, because problems will continue to come up, not just they came up previously, they're there now, and they'll yeah. be there in the future. At any point at which a problem crops up, people may then feel everything stops. All my thriving or flourishing or yeah. growing stops, and now I'm in crisis mode. Yeah, that's a great point. So there's a group of researchers uh, that primarily focus on positive psychology, and they've done a lot of work over the last few years, specifically in workplaces. So they've looked at all sorts of organizations across all different industries, really around the world. A lot of their research has been focused in Australia, some in Canada, a lot in the US, I believe some in Europe as well. And one of the things that they do is they they look to measure sort of the experience of workplace well-being. So they use, uh, there's a pretty vibrant model for psychological well-being that comes out of positive psychology called the PERMA model for well-being. And certainly I can talk about that if that's something you're of interest in, but we have tools to measure yeah. that so we can get like PERMA scores. It's sort of like well-being blood work, if you will. Uh -huh. uh, and then what they also do is they ask this very interesting question on these surveys. They'll ask, and I, I mean, I'll even pose it to you. You can think about it. If you feel like answering it, feel free to answer it. But <laughs> they ask a question along these lines. And I do the same thing in a lot of the work that I do and certainly in my live presentations. All things considered, Brendan, over the last 30 days of your work, which one of these statements do you feel like most represents or most resonates with how you feel like you've been doing? Over the last 30 days, do you feel like you've been consistently thriving in your work? Do you feel like you're doing well despite the struggles and challenges you face? Do you feel like, you know, I'm not really doing bad, I'm just kind of getting by? Or do you feel like, man, I've really been consistently struggling? And I ask those questions repeatedly in presentations that I do. I mean, I've probably collected data at this point on thousands of veterinary professionals all around the US, a little bit in Europe, and some in Canada. And consistently what I see is there's a large group of people, even today, even after 18 months of this insanity we've all collectively faced together and that veterinary professionals have really, really been challenged by. Even in that face, we see the bulk of people responding that they're doing well despite struggle or they're not doing bad, they're just getting by. Now, let's talk a little bit about the not doing bad, just getting by for a second. That, my friend, that is a form of resiliency. You know, sometimes in the face of whatever challenges we face, in a world of problems and deficits, maybe even suffering some level of pathology, sometimes the real superpower is just enduring. And that's what getting by kind of is for a lot of us. It's perseverance, it's grit, it's courage, it's bravery, it's coping. You know, we don't wanna be in that state permanently. That's not necessarily really the, you know, the epitome of thriving. And there are things that we can do to support those folks and hopefully uplift them so that they can say, you know what, actually things are hard and I'm still finding a way to do well. And I would say, you know, this is not hard data by any stretch, but in my sort of subjective experience and the audiences that I've dealt with and the clients that I've worked with, you know, I would say somewhere in the vicinity of 35 to 40% of veterinary professionals that I encounter say that they're doing well despite struggle. And that's kind of resiliency personified. I mean, that's what resilience really is. So we're not looking to try and create a world that's problem free. That's impossible. That's a venture that none of us can ever succeed in. Part of the human experience is the inevitable, sometimes even necessary challenges that we face. Rather, what we're looking to do is we're looking to cultivate workplaces that enable the ability to thrive despite challenge, that enable the ability to say, hey, you know what? Things are hard right now. 
And, and in many ways, this is awkward or even painful. And I or we can find a productive response to this challenge that we face together and still do well. Okay. Veterinary leaders, first of all, almost everyone in a veterinary practice is a leader. Yes. You're involved in leadership in some way, but thinking about yes. the people who are, who are more organizationally minded, not just personally minded. Yeah. I'm thinking about, there's been a lot of thinking about what emotional well-being thriving might look as an individual. Can you yeah. give a couple examples of what a veterinary practice with emotional well-being using these healthy skills or having these approaches to culture. Yeah. Can you give a couple examples of what that actually looks like? So then people can picture in their head, is this where I work now? Or is this where I want to work? Yeah, that's a, a an awesome thing. Thank you for the opportunity to paint that image. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we even have a few clients who I think kind of uh, epitomize this in some ways. So we utilize a framework that we have put together here at Flourish that is uh, sort of loosely called the four P's of positive leadership. And what this is really about is uh, how do leaders kind of enable that exact environment, that environment where people really do feel like they can thrive in their work. And I, I think it sort of requires four individual pillars, if you will, or four different things that, that leaders need to be cognizant of and aware of and working towards with intention and consistency. So the first one is what we call uh, psychological safety, which I'm sure that you've heard of at this point in time. It's become a bit of a, a buzz phrase uh, in organizational work, and certainly it is something that's vastly important in veterinary medicine. The very academic definition of psychological safety is it's the belief within a team environment that this team is safe for what we call interpersonal risk. So if you think about it this way, Brennan, it's important to you, I'm sure, when you're working with a team, you want people to think that you're you know, competent, capable, a positive contributing member of the team. You want people to think well of you. You know, that's part of being on a team. That kind of you know, desire to look good drives a, a natural state of impression management. We do what we can to appear good. You know, like just before signing on uh, to chat with you today, I was a bit unsure if this was going to be a video thing. And so, you know, I made sure that I put on a nice looking shirt, right? right I mean, that's right. important because it, it, it conveys something to you and potentially to the audience. That's important to all of us. The problem with that is that in a team environment, we also have to be able to learn. We have to be able to innovate. We have to be able to create and grow because there's no such thing as the perfect team or the perfect organization. And those two things can be at odds with each other. If it's really important to me to make sure that people think well of me and look good and I look good in the team environment, I am likely to withhold risk taking. You know, I'm, I'm likely to not want to tell you, hey, actually, you know, this thing that everybody else here seems to know how to do, I actually have no clue how to do this. Can you help me? That's an interpersonal risk. Suggesting a new way of doing things is an interpersonal risk. So leaders have the greatest influence over the capacity for people to feel, quote, brave enough to take those kinds of risks in a team environment in a productive way. They don't have all the influence, but they have the most. And so leaders have to be consciously always kind of thinking about how can I cultivate higher levels of psychological safety so that people can learn, grow, innovate, and create together, we can drive more team resiliency, and we can be more human at work. If we can be more human at work, then we can feel the, more like ourselves and work towards the best version of who we can be. So that's the first one. Okay. The second pillar is purpose. And purpose is another big buzzword. And, you know, we think of purpose certainly as sort of like that higher purpose, you know, what really being cognizant of the why, why us, why now, why here, all these kinds of things. But there's also embedded in this is this human need, this basic human need to feel like 
I matter, what I do matters, and I make a contribution, a positive contribution to the people around me and the people that we serve. Leaders have an incredible opportunity to help show that to people. And let me tell you, that experience of mattering and meaningfulness, it is powerful. There is some research that suggests that experiencing meaningfulness in our work on a day-to-day basis, not cognitively knowing it, but feeling it, feeling the meaningfulness of what we do and who we are in our work might actually be the number one vaccine against occupational burnout. That might be the number one prevention. And leaders, again, we, we have this great opportunity. I ask leaders all the time, raise your hand if you agree with me. Every day at work, I see people doing things that matter. And invariably, 99.99% of the people in the room raise their hands. And then I ask them, how often do you show them that what they do matters? Because that's where we make the big difference as a leader. So that's the purpose pillar. The third one is path. Path is really about you know helping people feel like they have some level of meaningful control. They're clear on expectations. They understand what they're supposed to be doing, what their role is, how they fit within the team and the organization. They have a sense of autonomy about how they can achieve those expectations and meet those expectations. And the resources are there so that they have what they need to succeed in their role. When those three things are present, path is in place and and we see this sense of accomplishment and achievement and, and growth towards mastery in the workplace. And then finally, the last one is what we call progress. And progress for me is really about the connective tissue of a team environment. You know, any work that we do in the world, period, whether it's veterinary medicine or some other industry is relational by nature. There's no such thing as a business endeavor that doesn't include relating between multiple human beings. And we know that we have basic human needs. We need to feel included. We need to feel a sense of belonging. We need to feel a sense of contribution. And so we've got to help people see that you do matter here. You do count here. I care about you. I care about your success. In fact, those two things right there, there's some research that suggests that when we feel that our leaders care about us as a human being and care about our success, not just in the organization, but globally, when those things are in place, we tend to rate our leadership as very high quality. The perception of high quality leadership is one of the top predictors of long-term profitability in any organization. So this stuff is really important. When we have that, when we have psychological safety, when we have purpose, when we have path, when we have progress, people tend to feel a sense of thriving in their work. They feel like I do good work here. I make a contribution. I matter. People care about me. That elevates that sense of emotional well-being. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders.
Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Okay, that is perfect. I want to take those four P's in reverse. <laughs> and I just, because I, I mean, I thought of those four things together sound positively utopian. A place that at each moment during the day, people can say they experience psychological safety with yeah. most or all of the people they work with. They feel a sense of purpose, not just a purpose that the unit, the team has a purpose, but that team purpose also has to gel with their own personal sense of their own purpose of what they want out of life, their yeah. path as a human being in the world. Yes. And then you're setting the path about having the clear expectations all the time, knowing where we're going, knowing how we're going to get there. And yes. the last one, the relational aspect that they have a connection to the people there and that the mm -hmm. boss, they know the bosses care about them and they care about them. That sounds perfect. So I want to start with the last one, progress. Yeah. Could you spell out a little bit more? I think I understood the concept, but progress, just tell me a little bit more about that, how that relates to what you were talking about, that fact of that sense of sort of reciprocal respect that's happening. Yeah. So I like to think of progress as sort of the leader and team member partnership. Okay. You know, <laughs> I think of like partnerships in my own life, right? Like, so my wife, for example, I know that my wife cares deeply for me. She loves me till, you know, the end of time for sure. And she also sees a great deal of potential in me. And so she's not, you know, she's not reticent to kind of push and nudge me towards the best version of who I am and who I can be. And that to me is really what a partnership is about. It's about caring genuinely and authentically for another human being and seeing what they're capable of and, you know, in a caring way, challenging them to achieve that. And I think leaders have a really great opportunity to do that with the teams that they serve, that they care for. What I think often happens, most of the time, by the way, I think this is unintentional. Brendan, I want to share with you, I really do believe this. I didn't always believe it, but in the work that I've done over the last few years, it's really become crystal clear for me. In veterinary medicine, I do not think that we have very many truly bad leaders. And what I mean by that is that there's very, very few human beings that work in veterinary medicine that are genuinely bad people. What I do find over and over and over again are really good people with really good intentions who do care. They just lead poorly because they don't have the skills. It would be sort of like, you know, if I, if I took a first year veterinary student, pulled them out of vet school and then told them to go work at, you know, a shelter doing spays and neuters all day long and try and keep up with the rest of the doctors, they're going to fail. They don't have those skills yet. We haven't taught them to them. Leadership is exactly the same way. So, you know, leaders, uh, often what I see is unintentionally leaders in veterinary medicine, they go to kind of one end of the spectrum. They'll either turn into kind of like the coddling leader. We all know this, <laughs> right. right? The manager with the open door policy, anybody can come to them anytime with any problem and they're there to fix everything. That's the coddling leader. And I get it. I get why they do that. They feel the responsibility of their role. They care about their team. They want to help them. They also see how they're struggling. They feel a bit guilty about that. So they want to do what they can to make things better. In a desire, a genuine and a good desire to improve the environment for people, they end up creating sort of a, an environment of learned helplessness where people don't feel like they're empowered to do anything on their own. And that's not helpful. On the other side of that spectrum, we'll, we'll sometimes see these managers, you know, the, the catchphrase, don't bring me problems, only bring me solutions. I'm not here to fix things for you. You got to fix it yourself. And I get 
you know, the drive behind that or the foundation behind that. We don't want to feel like we're a parent at work. We want to feel like we work with adults and, you know, grown ass adults should be able to solve their own problems. I understand that. And that's also very disempowering and dismissive. It tells people that if you're struggling here, the problem is not the environment or the people around you or my leadership, it's you. And if you have a struggle, something's wrong with you and you better fix it or get out of the kitchen. And that's not helpful either. I'm thinking about, you know, the personality typing that was so popular that and is still popular today that kind of shows the wide diversity of personalities. Yeah. There are certain personalities that will absolutely gravitate to one side or the other side sure. of that spectrum you're talking about. And some people will love working with that kind of manager on those yeah. extremes. So what I want you to do is I want you to sell me on how people at the extremes can work their way to the middle and why mm-hmm. that middle doesn't lose something by losing the caring, compassion, and love on the coddling and then losing the kind of hard-nosed, we're a powerful team, you're capable, go do it, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. And you're right. You know, oftentimes what we're talking about here are kind of these middle grounds that tend to, you know, match the needs of the bulk of the people, but not all the people. Certainly there are people who really just want to work for a coddling leader. And there are people who really (laughs) just want to work for a dictatorial leader. And that's great. And, you know, so my response to that would be, how is that working for them? (laughs) You know, how many of us successfully staff an entire veterinary hospital as a coddling leader, how many of us successfully staff an entire veterinary hospital with people who excel in that environment? We don't. Most people, not all, but most people don't want to be coddled. Most people don't want to be dismissed. Most people fit in the middle where we want to feel a sense of support and empowerment. We want to feel a sense of that you care about me and you're going to push me. You know, all those things combined, most of us live in that space of and, and that's a difficult place for leaders to navigate. So how do we do it? One of my default kind of go-tos for this is I think that leaders can do a better job of leaning into curiosity, really kind of adopting a little bit more of a coaching approach. And actually, I think this can work really well for both extremes. If you're a coddling leader and your tendency is to say, wow, that sounds really awful. Let me fix that for you. Think about how can you ask people more questions that will help them feel like they can play a role in it too. You know, you come to me, Brendan, and you're like, gosh, you know, David has just been awful to deal with all week. He just keeps bashing me and telling me what a horrible job I'm doing. You know, you've got to do something about him. A coddling leader is, you know, their tendency is going to be to respond to that and be like, wow, that sounds awful. I'll talk to David for you. Right. A coaching leader can say, okay, I'm about to try and fix this problem entirely for this person. Maybe that's actually what they need, but maybe I can lean into a little bit of encouragement here with some questions. Wow, Brendan, that sounds awful. I could see why you're, you know, upset and flustered by that. That would be a really difficult situation for anyone to work in. I'm curious, what have you said to David so far in response to anything that he said? Oh, you haven't said anything yet. Well, if you could say something, what would you say? Oh, wow. Yeah, I could see why you would want to say, David, you're being a jerk. Shut up. Do you think that that would be a productive thing to say? How do you think David would respond to that? What might be a different way that you could say that? You know, and even at the end of that conversation, you might still be the one that goes and talks to David instead of making Brendan talk to David. But by taking that approach, you're encouraging that thought process. You're encouraging a little more involvement. On the flip side, you can also use the same thing if you're that, you know, dismissive leader. Instead of you find yourself 
starting to utter that phrase, I don't want to hear your problems. I want to hear your solutions. You can think about, hey, you know, you came to me with this for a reason. Tell me a bit more about that. How come you've been struggling to solve this on your own? What would make it easier for you to solve this on your own? What kind of support could I provide you that would help you feel like you can take ownership of this? I'm not trying to get the dismissive leader to become a coddler or to get the coddler to become, you know, that, oh, just go empowerment and solve it on your own. I'm trying to get people to nudge a little bit closer to the middle because that's where most of us really feel the highest level of fulfillment and empowerment. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And that kind of takes me back to your third P path. And I was wondering during this, I could see if a leader who doesn't ask questions. So either they they listen to people, so they mm-hmm. they sort of, you know, they gossip with their inferiors and they and the inferiors share everything with them or their colleagues share everything with them and then they go solve it or just tell them that <laughs> they're so sorry and it's so rough and there's nothing to be done either way or the other side. When you switch these expectations, if this is the habit of this leader, when they switch it, I assume there has to be some clear communication, Pips, people are going to be upset and startled by this change. And I wondered about this third P where you talk about people have clear expectations. What's the response when you switch expectations like this of what a person can expect from you as a leader? I mean, how do you map that for them? Does it need to be completely explicit where you tell everyone I'm going to be doing this and you should listen for this? Or is it more Mm -hmm. implicit? Yeah, no, I tend to lean towards I don't like working in universals because I think that context makes a difference, but I tend to lean towards being more explicit and transparent. You know, I think, listen, everything that we do or don't do, everything that we say or don't say, everything that we tolerate or don't tolerate as a leader is setting a tone for the culture we're cultivating, period. We're constantly sending messages to our team. And when I say that our team has a watchful eye, I'm not saying that they're like sitting back in the corner, staring at us, watching what we're doing next. What I mean is that they look to us to set the tone for the culture. And so that is both a burden and a wonderful gift. It's a burden because it, it makes it hard, right? You know, we, we always have to be thinking about, gosh, what kind of impact, what message am I sending now? Right. But it's also a gift because it means that we have their ears and eyes. You know, we do have an opportunity to actually nudge things in the direction we want. So if I recognize that I need to change my leadership style, my approaches, my actual practices, and and I want to do this for a reason, most of the time, I think it's really beneficial to share that with the team. Hey, guys, listen, up until now, this is kind of how I've done things. I'm recognizing that that might not be the best way of doing things. And here's why. This is the change that I'm going to try and make. This is why it's important to me. This is what you might see or hear. Just want to give you a heads up. What questions do you have? I think that's always a beneficial approach to take with your team. Would you say in your experience going and visiting, that is a common or uncommon tactic that that leader has already employed? Has already employed in the past? That Yes, that example you gave where I'm making kind of a, a self-management and a management choice about how I want to do something differently. And I'm going to do that wonderful thing you did, which is, I think this hasn't worked in the past. I want to yeah. try this. Does anybody have questions? Have people already typically tried this with an entire group when it comes to management slash leadership in a practice? Or is this usually a new thing they're trying for the first time in your experience? Yeah. Most of the folks that I work with, this is their first go at this okay. way of doing things. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think that a lot of us think that we have done this in the past. Like, 
you know, oh, I've already talked to my team about this kind of stuff and it just didn't go over at all. They went, you know, we want to make the team the problem. It's not us. But when you really get down to the nitty gritty and, and you dig a bit deeper, uh, you know, w- walk me through. What did you do? How did it go? When did it happen? What did you say? Who was there? What was the situation and context? We find that like rather than, hey, let's all sit down together, you know, off the floor, quote unquote, undistracted, undisturbed, the whole team together, full audience, and have this honest, candid, vulnerable conversation. What you find out is that actually what they did was it was a chaotic day. They were shorthanded on staff. There were two emergencies that walked through the door and the manager finally got fed up with the shitty attitude of the team and said, okay, you know what? This isn't working. I'm going to be doing things differently from now on and you're going to fix your attitude. (laughs) Right? And yeah, that is sharing with the team that the way you've been doing things hasn't been working and you're going to change them, but not a very productive way of doing it. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.